Inequities are bred into the fabric and institutions that we all participate in, and simply wanting a better world doesn't necessarily mean we know how to get there, together or on our own. Welcome to The Ethical Rainmaker. I'm your host, Michelle Shireen Muri, and in this podcast, we cover a range of topics dealing with the complexity of the nonprofit and foundation world, primarily to help us build analysis and make changes so that we can better help our communities. We talk a little bit about where to step into our own power or where to step out of the way, and today's guest says, push the conversation without pushing folks away. Today's guest is Dr. Anu Taranath, who's no stranger to complexity, and in fact, one of her goals is to deepen our comfort with uncomfortable topics so that we can work towards equity and social justice without guilt and without shame and without needing to have the answers, but instead grappling with complexities of questions. She's an author, a professor, and a consultant addressing the underlying issues beyond the the check-the-box approach, which is so common, and she brings together her expertise in racial equity and intersectionality and social justice within the U.S. North American sphere in conjunction with a deep interest in the global North-Global South relationship, the history of colonialism, helpful versus problematic international aid, volunteerism, service learning, etc., And in her work, she often helps travelers, including traveling delegations, explore the tricky questions and build analyses and relationships to their own identities and experiences. In this episode, we talk about shame, blame, the damage that the binary causes, and pushing back against the frame that there is only one way to do justice work. But please forgive the sound quality. You'll definitely notice a difference. And so here we go with Dr. Anu Terna. Anu, welcome to The Ethical Rainmaker. Thank you, Michelle. Thrilled to be here with you. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be with you. And I am at this moment actually recording from one of Barcelona's more active neighborhoods. So we're going to have some color and sound in the background of this episode, maybe some slamming doors or whatever, garbage trucks, yelling. (laughs) But um, I thought it most appropriate because your most recent book is Beyond Guilt Trips, Mindful Travel in an Unequal World. And Oprah actually ranked it as one of the top travel books, uh, which is pretty amazing. You've described the book as a series of essays you put together with the theme of unsettled feelings about living in this glorious and painful world. I never thought that my name would be associated with Oprah. How nice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing, actually. Wonderful. This book uh, was published in 2019. Uh, it was published by a very small press. And to my astonishment and utter delight, has been moving in all kinds of circles, certainly the travel industry, but also being used as an anti-racist racial equity text in nonprofits and public agencies, corporations, uh, university classrooms, high school classrooms, all kinds of places and spaces where people are trying to grapple with the complexity of our world. This isn't an easy place to unpack. There's so much going on at any given moment. So how do you and I sift through the various feelings that are coming up for us in order to actually make the change that will make lives safer, more healthy, more equitable, people can live with more dignity, honor, Mm. and grace? 
Right. So I've been reading your book as I travel uh, mm-hmm. for the last few weeks. And you ask so many beautiful questions that we should be asking ourselves. And, you know, one of the things that you pointed to was, I'm, I'm going to quote it from page 33. <laughs> I'm such a nerd. Your book, I, I have I have marked up almost like every other page. There's something that I love and I'm like, oh, I got to get back to this. Or oh, I need to talk to so-and-so about that. Yeah. Love it. Love it's it. so good. It's so good. Because you're right. It is, it has become a DEI text. And, and from such an interesting perspective, too, one that we can all relate to, one of the things that you said was simmering in our guilt and discomforting feelings about systems we've not created but continue to participate in and perhaps benefit from does nothing for justice. Instead, we can build more comfort into talking about things many of us have been socialized not to. When we're less fragile and tripped up by our own discomfort, we build a better and more authentic and lasting foundation for global engagement. Yeah, right. The book uses stories, mine and many other people's stories, to help illustrate that no matter where we are on our journey, and no matter where in the world we are on our journey, uh, things are going to come up. Inequities are bred into the fabric and institutions that we all participate in. And simply wanting a better world doesn't necessarily mean we know how to get there together or on our own. You and I have not created the unequal world that we live in. I'd like to be able to fix it with one class, with one workshop, with one facilitation, with one anything, one movement, one protest, one gathering. And that's not how this works. We will need to develop the resilience and the camaraderie to actually work together over time as you and I are also changing in the midst of all that. How do we do that? How do we keep learning at the center of our movements of justice That to me is so critical uh, in my role as an external consultant in and out of a variety of organizations across sectors, because it often feels to me that we sometimes imagine that we have stopped learning or we might not have the permission to continue to learn. And when we are in a mindset where we already know or we already should know, there's very little space for learning. And learning to me is... It's exactly what moves our movements forward. How can I know everything about your life, Michelle, or anyone else that I'm in community with? How can others know all about my life or all the different hurts, the woundedness, the joys, the triumphs, the ordinariness of my life or your life? There's no way we can know it all. And rather than excuse away our ignorance, I actually would like to make a case that ignorance can be a space from which we can grow. Otherwise, what's the hope? And I see this in lots of my work. Many of us, for a range of reasons, we have been guilted and shamed into a corner, and we're not quite sure where to go from there, how to even move forward let alone move forward in community, move forward with the contradictions of all of us, move forward in complexity. Right. Well, and something that I've noticed, and, you know, if you're listening and this resonates with you, I'm not surprised. Like, 
I think in our social justice movements, we also, you know, there are many of us who might enjoy or just default to guilting and shaming others as if that is creating the solution. We talk a lot about accountability in the social justice Mm. movements. Mm. And let's take a moment to unpack that, please. You and I did not create the world that we're in. And here we are living in this complex, unequal, damaging and beautiful world in very different lives with very different opportunities because of that inequity and inequality that again, I didn't create and you didn't create. My ancestors might have, your ancestors might have, I'm sure my ancestors were not all glorious, wonderful, equity-minded people. I'm sure sure yours weren't either. Right. right. Though we like to fantasize that they were, oh, sure. like you said. <laughs> right. Definitely. And the fact that here we are living together, but living very different lives in this unequal mm. world makes it such that that feels unsettling to us. It's really unsettling in our movements, I think, when we're trying to bring people together who have had such different experiences and you overlay that with harm and oppression and hopelessness and a loss of dignity and a sense of, I can't believe folks don't get how hard this is for me. We all need to be seen and heard so desperately. Yeah. You know? Everybody deserves to feel like they matter and they are valued, precious people, even if you have more privilege than I even if I have more privilege than you, I come to this work as an educator. I come to this work as an advocate, as an activist, an ally, somebody whose passion intertwines so much of what I do. I also come to this work really understanding the ways that when we don't feel seen and heard, it plays out in ways in our own life in our families, in our communities, and in our societies. When we think about marginalized peoples, our movement, movements, has a a sophisticated understanding of really holding the value of feeling heard and seen and the damage of not feeling seen and heard and how that moves through us. We really understand that, right? Which is why for decades, the left movement has been interested in really lifting up the voices, being able to support voices that have not had enough mainstream airtime. It has been not only adding people to the proverbial table of power, but to smash that table and create other kinds of kitchen tables, floors and backyards and front porches for us to gather and think and strategize and storytell. Some of the work that I'm involved in as a consultant is what happens when we don't do such a great job at that? Where are right. we Where are we as a movement tender and raw? What does uh, it mean for us as a movement to process our tenderness and our rawness together, given the fact that you know little about my life, given the fact that I might know little about your life, All we see is that skin and body and sometimes our gender and what our body looks like. And we just see those things and have a range of assumptions about it. 
But we also use other methods of ascertaining who's, quote, on our side or who's not. You know, if you use different justice language than I do, I might be suspicious of you. I might think you're not as far along on your equity journey as I am. I might right. feel I might feel a little smug and think, ah, oh, Michelle, huh, I can't believe she used that term. That was so 2008. Yeah. And I think those often unspoken tensions about our own tenderness, our own nervousness, our own um, desire to feel seen and heard as a left movement. Uh, I think these play out in a variety of ways. I agree with that. You're listening to The Ethical Rainmaker, and I'm your host, Michelle Shireen Muri. We're speaking with Dr. Anu Taranath, author of Beyond Guilt Trips, Mindful Travel in an Unequal World, about how guilt and shame block our best work and what we can do about it. Now, a word from our sponsors. As a consultant, one of the biggest pain points I see is a lack of organization internally. Many community-based organizations and smaller and honestly sometimes larger nonprofits as well are using spreadsheets or clunky databases that take a lot of time to use. And maybe your organizational system isn't really understandable to others who need that information. Ultimately, what all that means is that many opportunities might be left on the table. The vision for Neon One is that untapped generosity is unlocked when nonprofits have affordable, connected tech and resources. That's why they've built an entire ecosystem of software and services to make it easy for your nonprofit to create amazing generosity experiences. Visit neonone.com slash Michelle for more. I think that a lot of people, a lot of us, want to call each other out or call each other in or we want to, you know, we want to think that one person is better than the other because our language, like you said, is like from, is outdated and I think so often there is something about us that's hungry. Mm. And I'm again, I am also talking about like the left, quote, social justice movements, you know, that we belong to, you and I both belong to also. Yes. But I think there's there's almost a hunger to want to call people out. And I say this because I think the more that I see it in the, some of the facilitation work I do and with some of the clients that I work with, when I'm looking at group dynamics, I think... Maybe that's part of wanting there to just be an answer. And maybe the answer is you're wrong, you know, like, or maybe the answer is this topic is uncomfortable, but you said something I can latch onto right now. And I'm going to talk about that instead. You know, like, I think there's so much, there's so much that we do to distract ourselves. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And also to maybe make ourselves feel better. Like I know better now and you don't know what I know and I'd like to school you on it. Or I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm making it sound more intentional than it is. I think you're totally right. I don't think much of this is deliberate and intentional. I think it's unconscious, right? We live in such a complex world in which pointing out the fact that Black Lives Matter, for example, or queer lives matter, or trans Black women's lives matter, is seen as political, it's seen as controversial, it's seen as causing mm. a ruckus, as opposed to simply stating fact. Yeah. And that is enough to make any of us nuts in our minds. It's ludicrous that we're in a state like we are right now, where yeah. 
what happens in my body is being legislated by other people. I can't, Absolutely. I can't believe that we're here. And when you and I, when we're coming to these conversations with so much passion, so much drive, spirit, spunk, and strategy, mm. we also have not often been taught on how to create and hold uh, the containers that we will need to carry all of this at once. Right. There's only so much that you and I and our movements can carry all at once without things spilling without things feeling really messy, without us slipping on what has spilled out of that container that feels smaller and smaller that we're having to navigate. Mm. And so I think the ways that our unconscious mind operates is really powerful and it's very telling about where we are fragile, where we are tender, where we need some support and sustenance, right? If you and I are in community and if I am feeling so overwhelmed with the barrage of assaults, not only on my own personhood, but on the people and the communities that I love and care for and stand with, my capacity for nuance is pretty dim at the moment. It doesn't mean that I'm not a nuanced person, but my capacity for variation in the story that I have in my own mind it's quite low. And so here yeah. you come at me using language from 2010, using language from 2016 that I okay. have learned is not as hip or woke as it was. Here you come and I'm only able to hold so much. And so right. then it becomes about the language that you use as opposed to the spirit and how you're using that language to actually mm. come toward me to talk about justice and equity and love and compassion and being together in better, more holistic ways. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that anything goes and we shouldn't react when people say harmful and hurtful things to us. I am suggesting that we have a more nuanced understanding of what harm and hurt actually is. Just because you use different language than me doesn't necessarily make what you said harmful. Right. I might not like what you said. I might be uncomfortable by what you said, but not liking and feeling some discomfort around what you said is not the same as being harmed and hurt by what you said. And this is nuance, right? It's not yeah. only all in one bucket for us to have to grapple with. There's actually quite a lot of nuance that can be incredibly helpful for us as you and I are trying to get to know each other and be in community better. And you and I multiplied by millions are trying to do good work together. When is it strategic to be done with somebody or something they said or something they did? And when is it actually in the service of justice to stay engaged a little bit longer with some curiosity that friendly curiosity that we really need to remember and uh, cultivate more of as a, as a movement and as a community. When w is that actually more strategic for us? Oh my goodness. I mean, these are some of the things that I think <laughs> a lot about, right? Yeah. And I, I do too. Cause honestly, I mean, just, I don't know. In my, in my experiences, uh, maybe in the last two years since we launched community centric fundraising, 
And certainly in the last, I don't know, six months or so of my consultancy, you know, practice, I just feel like I'm seeing a lot more, you know, like call out, refuse to engage in conversation, refuse to see the intentionality. I mean, there's a difference between being frustrated and uncomfortable and harm, right? There's a difference between being unsure of what's happening in a conversation or a little anxious. Uh, There's a difference between that and a harm. And I think often, Mm -hmm. or being unsafe. And I think often the, I hesitate to call it a trend, but I guess I'm, what I'm seeing more of, um, at least from where I stand is this idea that that we're, when we're uncomfortable or when we're engaging in things that are uncomfortable, that harm is being caused to us, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I think we're kind of mislabeling what harm and safety are mm-hmm. when we're talking about conversation. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely spot on here. Mislabeling, again, doesn't need to be pernicious or intentional. I think the more that we, as community, understand the context in which we label or listen or not listen Mm -hmm. or lean in or push away, the context matters immensely here. It's not about our individual motivation. I'm talking about context. And right now, as has been throughout history, but feels pretty intense these days, no? Lots is going on. And though lots is going on, and many of us in the movement are busy, frazzled, stressed, trying to put out fire after fire. That's partly responding to the lots going on. But I think what you and I are actually talking about is not just responding to the things that are happening to us, but taking some time and energy to focus inward, to get a sense of what does lots going on mean for me inside? How is my mm-hmm. nervous system reaction reacting? What mm-hmm. does reacting mean for me? And what does responding mean for me? Mm-hmm. When am I leaning in with curiosity? When do I feel my curiosity shut down? Mm-hmm. When do I feel like I'm able to learn? I-, I think these are some incredibly poignant, sometimes sensitive, reflective questions that you and mm-hmm. I could really benefit from. No movement for justice, for me, is only about a policy or a procedure uh, or a law that we're trying to get enacted. It's never only about the so-called outside. Mm. All movements for justice are also about attending to what's happening inside of us, being more aware of what's coming up, how we feel, how we navigate those feelings, what feels raw and tender, and giving us the space to say to ourselves, oh, baby, you're feeling tender again. Yeah, it happens. Mm, yeah. Take a moment. Take a moment, Anu. Right. Like to talk to me as if I would want a good friend, as if I would talk to a good friend. Mm-hmm. I'm very sweet with others. Sometimes I'm quite judgy with myself. And I think that's mm-hmm. true for many of us, right? if we had the permission to be able to pause more often and attend to ourselves with some sweetness, some grace, I think then I'd be 
better able to navigate conversations with you, better able right. to con- to navigate conversations with my community, with my family, with people I enjoy and maybe enjoy less. I've developed a bit more resilience from the inside, right? Yes. This is why I think my book Beyond Guilt Trips is circulating uh, throughout different sectors. The book, as I shared, offers stories around what happens when we're actually navigating identity and difference close to home and far away. We're often not taught how to navigate the feelings. We're often taught that we need to take action. I think it's dangerous for us to always put action above navigating feelings. Feelings has this kind of so-called feminine quality to it. Action is often gendered as very masculine. I think that's a dangerous binary for us to fall into. Mm -hmm. I hear from people all the time, just tell us what to do. Tell us what to do. To which I always respond, I can't. I have some ideas, but we'll actually have to go through the process of talking together before we can explore some of those ideas. And that process happens between us as people, but it also happens within ourselves. And the book is a guide in some ways. It's a offering, an invitation for people to step in and consider what feelings come up, when, and how might we navigate that better. If I am feeling so loud in my own head, Uh swirling in my own guilt or shame because I have more than you, that's not allyship. That's not justice. That's not any of the things that I want to stand passionately for. It's simply redirecting energy back on me and feeling even more petrified and paralyzed to speak, share, and learn. Right. Well said, well put. And you ask such thoughtful questions in your book that Mm. we all could be asking ourselves. You're listening to The Ethical Rainmaker, and I'm your host, Michelle Shireen Miri, in a great conversation with Dr. Anu Taranath. This show is supported by a variety of individuals and sponsors. You can join our community of individual supporters on Patreon. And if you want to find out how to get your name and your work out to our ever-expanding community, drop us a line at hello at theethicalrainmaker.com. We would love to have you. Speaking of sponsors, we're so glad Neon One has joined the Ethical Rainmaker family. Part of the reason I'm grateful for Neon One's sponsorship of the Ethical Rainmaker is because community-based orcs thrive when they put people first. That's the point of community centrism. So what does a community-centric future look like? It looks like focusing on people and not their money, focusing on the experience of connection, of connecting with people. Neon One uses tech to accelerate that experience. Their mission is to connect nonprofits with technology and resources that personalize their generosity experiences. You can learn more today about their work at neonone.com slash Michelle. Michelle, tell me why the book really resonated for you. I think that, you know, for me, your book really resonated because you talk from your own standpoint Mm -hmm. as, you know, coming from an immigrant family, being raised in the United States primarily. And then also, you know, 
watching as your students go or taking your students abroad. You have so many examples of people who are, for example, younger people of color trying to get back to their roots only to be disappointed or devastated or feel like they can't fit in. And you have these examples from many countries, right? And you have examples of people who are, are look, look really different than the country that they're living in and visiting, um, you know, and their, their responses. And you grapple with some really interesting, difficult questions around what, what our privilege is like, what knowledge we might have as visitors that perhaps um, the folks we're visiting may not have. They may change the course of their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, you also you talk about international aid work mm-hmm. and aid work in general and kind of the performative nature of most of that mm-hmm. and the opportunities that are lost when we travel and we don't engage with one another about interesting dynamics that are happening. Mm-hmm. For example, you talk about you talk about traveling with white colleagues who are your peers. And I think you're in Morocco mm-hmm. and you're talking about the way that People are responding to you, Moroccans are responding to you, and then your colleagues' discomfort and later kind of like shaming of the way in which folks are trying to connect more with you than with the other folks, right? right? Right. Because you look a certain way and the way in which our cultures and our perception, you know, maybe the fact that, you know, your parents are immigrants, maybe the fact that you speak multiple languages, maybe the fact that you come from somewhere a lot Oh, your your roots are from somewhere a lot closer to Morocco than mm-hmm. your colleagues. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about the ways in which we perceive things and how how differently that can feel for each one of us. And I guess for me, you know, as someone, my family, my my mom is from Iran. My parents were both living in Iran when the revolution happened, and they had to leave in the middle of the night. They got one suitcase. The rest of our family members didn't know where they were. Um, because they were taken to a secret airport, you know, like they, my mom had, did not have a chance to say goodbye Mm. to her family. Mm. They found her, you know, in order to come and give a hug and a kiss and, you know, tears. But she was only able to return two other times from that moment in which she got rooted out Mm. of her family system. And my entire family was shattered during that time Mm. and we, and never to be reunited. And so I think when I hear from my cousins right now during the recording of this podcast, it's early October and mm-hmm. um, Iran is going through a huge uprising. Many people are being murdered by the government. Um, many people are out in the streets protesting. Folks are throwing funerals for their family members mm-hmm. and then encouraging the, fam- the funeral attendees to keep going and protesting because so many rights have been taken away mm-hmm. uh, from the people since that revolution, yes. right? Since that revolution in 78. Yes. And my cousins are there and I've never had a chance to meet my cousins Mm. because they were born after me and and I've never been able to go and visit Mm. for multiple reasons. And I hear from them, you know, on WhatsApp uh, and I hear what's happening in the streets when they're able to get through Mm. when the internet isn't shut off. I just Mm. think about how different my situation is from my own family members Mm. in a different country. Right. And I think of how different my situation is from, um, you know, like I, I, I also, like you, am clocked as many different ethnicities. 
Um, I'm pretty ethnically ambiguous. And so whatever country I'm traveling in, if there's any shade of like a light brown that exists, I, I basically look like I fit, fit mm-hmm. in for folks' mm-hmm. perceptions of me. And that really affects the way that I travel. In yes. fact, I feel like I'm probably a lot more comfortable than most people yes. you know, who travel, than most of my friends and colleagues who travel. Yes. My ethnic ambiguity gives me a lot of privilege. Mm-hmm. And allows me, allows other people to feel more comfortable with my presence Mm -hmm. and, you know, and connect more easily with me. And I've never, yeah, when I read your book, um, as I've been reading your book on this trip and asking myself some of the questions that you ask, I just, I think about, I think about those experiences, Mm -hmm. the experience of being a, a child of immigrants, a child or a family member of a family unit that was shattered Mm -hmm by revolution, having such huge differences in privilege among family members, you know, the sacrifices that my family made so that I could be in a, a different scenario. Mm-hmm. I also think about some of the, you know, the travel I've done. My parents taught me to value travel, mm-hmm. to really use it as a way to understand that there are many points of view, you know, and that we're just small grains of sand yeah. in this right. desert right. together. You know, but I um, I remember when my colleagues uh, I was working in immigrant rights, and I remember when my colleagues expressed concern that I was traveling to Burma slash Myanmar because there was such political upheaval there, mm-hmm. and because travel could also mean supporting the government, mm-hmm. right? And I've had mm-hmm. to think about what does my presence mm-hmm. mean, you know? And then I got I got to hear the political arguments. Um, before I left. Mm-hmm. And then I got to hear the arguments for when I were, was witnessing a group of folks who were um, slowly being murdered by the government and the thing keeping them alive was outside witnesses, mm-hmm. like outsiders as witnesses, oh, right? Yeah. So they're like, thank you for coming. I'm so glad wow. you can witness me because the moment you stop witnessing me, I am dead. Oh, oh. And Right. Like just heavy shit, heavy shit. That was uh, many years ago now, but it was just like, so yeah. So from my own perspective, Mm -hmm. from all of these identities, I read your book Mm -hmm. and think it's such a valuable, um, valuable question, Mm -hmm. valuable inquiry Mm -hmm. to consider, not just in travel, of course, but in the work that we do, Mm -hmm. how are we othering, Mm -hmm. you know, what does our privilege look like? What is building an analysis look like? When is it okay when is it not, you know, like just all of that. I so appreciate you sharing parts of your story, your family's story in this raw way. Uh, I feel it in my chest and in my knees when you speak. And that story sharing is part of justice work for us. Yes. Being able to share and being able to receive not just the triumphant stories of you and I, but even the stories that make us bristle or make us weep. That too Mm -hmm. is justice work for us. So thank you so much for that sweet gift. I want to also thank you for such a beautiful and generous reading of my book. Writing a book is a solitary activity in some ways, but Mm -hmm. being in community with people who resonate with different parts of it, oh, the joy, the delight, it's never ending. <laughs> it's never ending for me. So I thank you for that. I'm so glad. I heard about you um, from our mutual friend, Stacey Wynn, and I did not know about the book at that moment too. So I found it on your website and ordered it oh, and read great. it. Thank you. Um, thank you. I'm yeah, grateful I just, to Stacey for our introduction because it feels like a really uh, beautiful connection. 
Yeah, really beautiful connection that we get to have. And yeah, it's an honor to share my story. And to be honest, uh, not many ask. Mm. So mm. it's a pleasure to be asked mm. as well. And, you know, your story also raises something else that I think is important for us to share with the folks that are listening, that the binary system that we're in, you have privilege or you don't have privilege. That's right. Is a simple system. And sometimes in an overwhelmingly complex world, simplicity is extremely seductive. I would love yes. to be able to just point out who has and who doesn't have privilege. I'm not mm. pretending that different features of our life or different ways that we look don't inform so many things about our life. I understand all that. And I'm also suggesting that a simplistic binary system of either you are or you aren't, you do or you don't have privilege or you are oppressed or you're not oppressed. Uh, these binaries can make us feel better in the short term, uh -huh. but they might not do much for us long term in terms of strategy, building solidarity, really creating the kind of allyship that we deserve and require mm -hmm. to move mm -hmm. our movement forward. You know, the fact that I am a South Asian American, middle-aged, small woman who works in a university and who also consults on the side is laced with all kinds of privileges and unprivileges. I have so much privilege in so many ways. I've also mm -hmm. been treated like crap in a variety of moments too. Right. And right. when I travel, I am traveling in this skin, in this body, in the uh, assumptions that people are making about me. And sometimes I've had people abroad say to me, wait, you're the American? No, no, no. We want the white American. We want the right kind of American, not you. We want mm. somebody white. And I have also met people from different parts of the world who have created kinship with me so quickly based on the fact that I wasn't white. A friend that I made during my last travel to Ghana had said to me, Anu, you and I are like family. India is closer to Ghana than US is to Ghana. And he did not mean geographically, he meant culturally. And though he knew very little about me at the time of this conversation, there was something so sweet and gratifying about that instant connection that he felt that was able to blossom and grow in our short friendship because of the shared similarities that he presumed we had. Now, my role at that moment wasn't to say, actually, you know nothing about me, my new friend. So how do you know if I'm like you or not? That feels so presumptuous. <laughs> the older I get and the more people I work with, I really want to savor sweet, sweet, small moments. That to me is very much justice work. I'm ready for the revolution if it comes. In the meantime, I am going to savor small, small, sweet moments of connections across difference, even if that's not the full story. Even if he made an assumption about who I am, even if X or Y, Right. There's something so sweet about those moments that we might share. I don't want yeah. to feel jaded 
uh, or so disengaged or too woke or too hip or too whatever. I want to stay nerdy and really celebrating those small, sweet moments. I think it gives me a lot of hope. It gives me a lot of sustenance. It helps me thread different pieces of my life together. I am all of those things. I am a combination of many, many identities, just like all of us are. And if you and I had some more space and spaciousness to actually feel all that we are, maybe we wouldn't have to be so binary in our thinking. You could be mm-hmm. you in the full complexity of you. I can be me in the full complexity of me. And maybe our movements could also enjoy the full complexity of all of us. What might that look and feel and sound like? Delightful, no? I don't think that's a pipe dream, actually. I don't think I'm simply being aspirational. I think I'm just putting into words what I'm already noticing from many of the people mm-hmm. that I work with. Oh, I like I, I like that vision. I think I think you're right. And I always need to be reminded because I think it's so I don't know, I feel like our systems teach us uh, binary thinking. Yes. Yes. And I've been so excited about this conversation and I want to thank you for coming on The Ethical Rainmaker and having this conversation. I want to thank you right here. The audience can't see it, but right here in my hands, I have Beyond Guilt Trips, Mindful Travel in an Unequal World. It was Book Award finalist, five stars from Washington State Book Awards. It was um, mentioned as Condé Nast's, one of Condé Nast's top books. It was mentioned as one of Oprah's top travel books. So I recommend that whether or not you love to travel, you check out this book and check out anuteranath.com for what she's up to. It's such a pleasure to have you on the pod. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. Thank you for writing the book and thank you for sharing your time with us. Thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, It felt like a beautiful friendship rekindled and starting anew all at once. Thanks everyone for listening in. It was good, wasn't it? It was great. It was great. Yeah. Thank you so much. And that's it for The Ethical Rainmaker. Thanks for hanging in there with our sound quality issues. It's a great episode. Thank you for listening. We exist to provide zero-cost information, inspiration, and critique so that we can all do better in our work. So if you're here for this content, for this body of work, please share this pod. You can also join our mailing list, engage with us on socials, write us a review. We are here specifically for you so that we can all do better. Thank yous go out to our ever-expanding community of Patreon supporters. You are the fucking best. And you too, if you're not a Patreon supporter already, you can join us as well. And thank you to Neon One as one of our sponsors. If you're interested in sponsorship, please feel free to reach out and drop us a line at hello at theethicalrainmaker.com. The Ethical Rainmaker is produced by me and Juliana Mayo with socials by Stacey Wynn Creative and production assistance by Coco Decker. Thank you to Anu Taranath for your time and your body of work. You can find Anu at anutaranath.com. As always, find links and transcripts at theethicalrainmaker.com. Our awesome theme song is I'm Gold by Trick Candles, and you can find them on Bandcamp. The Ethical Rainmaker comes to you again in two weeks, and you're going to love what's next.